All right, come on in. Okay, um, does any, everybody feel that little like uh, groove underneath your nose above your lip? Everybody feel that? Everybody got one of those? Does anybody know what that's called? What is that called? No, a mustache. Not yet. Um, it's called a piltrum. Did you know that, Gideon? And do you know that you have four little holes in your eyelids? Did you know that? You go look in the mirror when you get home. Do you know what those are called? Lacrimal punetta. I don't know if I'm saying any of these correctly. And did you know that your goosebumps have muscles? Did you know that? Those are called the erector pilla. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Do you know how many, how many body parts you have in your body? How many hairs are on your head do you think average? Any guesses? 50 million, not that many. About 100,000. You know how many taste buds you have in your mouth? 9,000. Right? It's incredible. 100 trillion cells in your body, 206 bones, 600 muscles, lots of organs. You have lots of parts, don't you? Yes. I Googled it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we are going to be talking today about the church. Look at all the people. Okay? Each one of them is a part in this body. Some of them are lacrimal punnetas. Some of them are philtrums. Some of them are eyes and mouths. What's your part? Are you part of the body of Christ? How? How does somebody become part of the body of Christ? You need to believe what? Him. Who? Specific people. Christ, right? What did he do that we just sang about? What did Jesus do? He died on the cross, Jeremiah. You're right on. The Spirit of God brings us to belief in this, and then we become part. So are you part? Do you believe in Jesus? So what's your part? What are you good at? What are you good at, Gideon? What do you like to do? Do you guys all know that you have a part here? You're needed here. It doesn't matter your age, your height. It doesn't matter. You're a part here. Do you know that? You're part of this body. So we need you. Okay? Don't let anybody else tell you different. You're part of this, okay? All right. Now hustle on back there and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. All right. We are going to be in the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, they are under a seat in front of you. 1 Corinthians is towards the back of your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That is on page 959 in those Bibles in front of you. We've been doing a series, this is part three of four, and kicking off our fall ministry season, trying to explain why we do what we do here, and then what we're doing, and I'm focusing on neighborhood small groups. Small groups are gatherings, smaller gatherings of people in our church around our community, where we meet to come under the care of an elder, 
That is a man that God has appointed to provide leadership and protection and care and teaching. Uh, And we also gather, what we're going to cover this week is for relationships, for each other. We need each other. Uh, So that's what we're going to cover today. Um, Again, neighborhood small groups aren't are somebody are something that we're trying to encourage as kind of something that you hope you want to do, not that you have to do. They're not required. Um, there won't be any pressure if you don't. We just want you to see the goodness of it, and hopefully with a good attitude, make it work. Um, be a part of it. Uh, and so those have kicked off. If you need more information, you contact the church office. If you've not attended and you'd like to, there's a sign up in the back. We're trying to organize them geographically, so there's a group in your area that we'd like you to join. And so if you have any more questions, just let me know or, or uh, maybe one of the ushers or something like that afterwards and we'll do that. I am going to preach mainly on verses 12 to 27, but I'm going to read all of chapter 12 for some context. Uh, and so I'll read that now. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, a little bit about Paul's letter here. He's responding to questions that they have asked with this letter. The Corinthian church is a divided church. There's fighting, and people have written letters or shown up personally to Paul, and they're asking questions. And one of the things that they're fighting about is, is which spiritual gifts are more important than the others. They're dividing in the church over this. And so Paul's responding to this, and so you'll see throughout this letter things like, and now concerning. He's answering their question or, or, or uh, their issue. So now concerning spiritual gifts, you... Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul's reminding them that even though they all at one time were not believers in Jesus, they all were worshiping false idols, God's Spirit has come and led them to faith in Jesus. That's it. That's what's going on here. They're now believers in Jesus. That's by God's Spirit. And now in verse 4, by that same spirit, they have different gifts and abilities to be used in the church. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you see the principle here. God's Spirit has brought you to faith in Jesus, and that same Spirit has gifted you for service as he wills in the church to each of us individually. And now Paul is going to take from here on out that principle and use an illustration, an analogy of the body to help us get it and to stop the fighting over them. That's what's going to happen in the coming verses. So, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, 
Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, or if the, yeah, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts, of healing, helping administration, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Father, help us now to be not only hearers of your word, but doers, that by your spirit we may understand what you have for us in your word and that we might live it out, applying it to your glory and for the good of each other. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start uh, with verse 25. The point of this teaching on who we are as the church is that we might care for each other. God has so composed the body, giving Greater honor the part that lacked it, I'm sorry, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, and so that the members may have the same care for one another. As I said, uh, the church in Corinth was uh, rife with conflict and fighting. And one of their conflicts was over which people were better than the others because, based on what they were able to do what they were good at. The main thing they were fighting about was the gift of tongues. Right? That is the ability to speak in a language that you didn't know. So we see this, let's say, in Acts chapter 2, where uh, peep Jews from all over the world, all different languages gathered together. God's Spirit gave some of the apostles the ability to speak in Spanish, even though they had never learned Spanish. Okay? And they were elevating that gift above all others and saying, if you have this gift you're like better than everybody else in the church. And so you'll notice when I was reading, Paul consistently lists the gift of tongues last in his list. Why is he doing that? He's trying to show them that it's one of the least useful gifts because people don't understand what you're saying. So he's trying to quell the infighting by showing them what these gifts are for and who we are as the body of Christ. And the point of it is care. That's the whole point of this section. 
that the members may have the same care. That word care there is concern. It's actually anxiety. It's an anxious concern for each other that all of the members with all of their abilities and gifts may have the same kind of concern, the same kind of desire to help each other. That's what the point of it is. So uh, this is one of the points of neighborhood small groups. You can get together in a smaller group with people different from you and have concern for their well-being and use whatever God has given you for their good. You come on Sunday morning, you don't get to know what the needs are. You would never really learn that just by coming here in this large group. So we want to break you into smaller groups so you can get to know people. And as you get to know them, you get to know where they have needs. And you get to use what you have been gifted by God with to help them. That's it. That's the whole point of this. Now that's going to take time, right? It's going to take time for you to get to know each other. It's going to take time for you to develop trust for each other. And it's going to take time for you to figure out where you fit in the care for that smaller group. That's what the church is. This is when it's beautiful. This is what Christ has designed the church for. All right. But what Paul is pointing out in here is that there's three issues of sin that inhibit this care, that cause it to fail, that causes the church and the kind of care and concern we should have each other to be disrupted. There's three issues that he's going to address of sin that damage the kind of care you have for each part of your own body. We talked about the, in the, in the kids' sermon, we talked about the little um, holes in your eyelids that allow the tears to get in your eye. If those failed, you would sooner or later not see. So every part matters. And there's three ways that Paul is addressing that really mess this up. Uh, during my time at seminary, I did a year internship with one of my professors who was a pastor at a church in Charlotte. Um, the church was founded or planted with the main purpose of reaching the unchurched. If you were a Christian in the 80s or 90s, this was big a deal. Uh, seeker sensitive. He he began the church by going out and serving people in the surrounding neighborhoods who were unchurched, who weren't a part of a church, and asking them what kept them from going to church and what they felt like they would need in a church that would make them come, that would encourage them to come. So basically, what would attract you to church? We've labeled it now the attractional model. Now those questions aren't bad in themselves. But as a starting point, as a foundational cornerstone to build a church on, it, it's, it's rather silly. It's more business model to try to meet the needs of religious consumers. He didn't view the unchurches needing to be born again, but as people who just needed a better product. The foundational thinking was the church wasn't putting out a good enough product, and so they weren't coming to church because the product wasn't very good. They had things that had a better appeal, football on Sundays, or doing their lawn, or whatever. And so he just wanted to figure out how to offer a better product to attract them. And so this is our society, isn't it? We're consumeristic. We are consumers. We view much 
of our lives through the lens of getting our needs met, especially our more immediate, shallow, felt needs. That impacts the church. That impacts how we view this. That impacts how you view each other. You will have relationships with somebody as long as they're meeting your needs. You're a consumer. And when they don't meet your needs or they frustrate you or offend you, you're done with them. We're not going to do this anymore. But that isn't what the church is at all. Paul uses the analogy of a human body to challenge us to see who we are in Christ. I think the most striking word of this entire section is the last word of verse 12. So it is with Christ. Let me just read this. What word do you expect there? It's not Christ. What word, if you were playing fill in the blank, would you expect to read there? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with the church. He's talking about the church. Do not expect to read the word Christ there. In fact, when you read it, it's kind of a, huh? The word Christ there is surprising, or it should be if you're kind of reading carefully. What's so stunning about this is Paul is basically saying the term church and the term Christ are synonymous. They're interchangeable. We are so united to Jesus Christ that Paul can just throw in the word Christ where we'd expect to read church. He is comparing the local church to a human body, and the local church then is Christ's body. Can you just think about that? What are you? What are we? This is not us individualistically. This is not us as individuals. This is us as a body, as a whole. What are we? We are actually the visible body of Christ on earth. This idea as us being a physical representative of God began in the garden in Genesis, right? We are what? Created in God's image. We have lost that. It's been ruined because of the fallen sin. It's not gone all the way, but it's just messed up. And what is happening in Christ is God is renewing us back into his image. So we are on this earth a walking, living, breathing organism that portrays the truth of Jesus to everybody who's watching. That's what we are. And so Paul in verse 12 isn't talking about Jesus. He's talking about the church. And yet the church is so bound up in Jesus Christ that Paul calls us Christ. We're so united to him spiritually, almost mystically, that Paul inserts the glorious name of our Lord when he's meaning us. Isn't that a comfort, though? Isn't that awesome? Who are you embarrassed to be related to? (laughs) Who are you embarrassed to share, share a name with? Christ is not embarrassed to put his name on us. The connection that we have with Jesus is vital We are given the name above all names, the name alone by which we are saved. It's used for us. This is why the church over history has often named itself Christ's church. 
Have you ever seen a church that's named Christ Church? It's a very common church name. Why? Because of this verse. Because they see it as synonymous. We call ourselves Pine Grove. <laughs> yeah, right? We're not changing our... Well, maybe we will someday. I don't know. I'm not, I didn't say that because we're changing our name. But the simple thing to remember here that Paul is pointing out is that who the church is is unlike any other organization or entity in this world. That's who we are. We're royalty. We're important. Not because we're important, because we're in Christ. So, why does Paul take the time to tell the truth of who the church is? Because the main error keeping them from treating each other like they should is a theological error. We're fond of saying, you actually do what you think. What you think leads to your behavior. Right? You know that. This is why one of the fundamental things that happens when you become a Christian is your thinking has to change. How you think about church has to change. We aren't consumers. You're not here to get your needs met, especially your felt ones. We are here as Christ represented on earth to show the same kind of concern for each other Christ has for us. Because we're his body. This is what we're for. So Paul is first correcting their theology. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was talking about how in colleges, the queen of the sciences theology is no longer even hardly taught. How many of you have ever been to a college graduation? Any of you? All right. You see all the professors dressed up, funny-looking gowns, and they have different colored ropes or sashes around them. Typically, they, the colors represented a discipline. Science, the arts, engineering, so on and so forth. And the order of the colors was very important. The most important disciplines went first and so on. And in history, the first in the procession was always the professor of theology. Why? Because theology was seen to be the discipline around which all of the other disciplines were ordered. It was the queen. It was the center. It was the most important thing to get your truth about who God is and who we are straight, and then everything else can be in right order. It is no wonder that since theology is gone, that all of the other disciplines are so screwed up. It's the same thing in the church. We don't like theology anymore. We don't want to learn truth. We just want to feel good. We want an experience. But Paul begins by correcting our thinking. We must remember who we are. Who are we? If you want to act in your neighborhood small group right in a way that builds it up and encourages it, you have to know who we are. You have to know the truth behind who we are in Christ. And Paul relates who we are to the human body. I love this about God's word. It's very applicable. It's very easy to understand in most of its parts. Some parts are hard. um, But they try to make it as simple for us. We have this saying that it's as clear as the nose on the end of your face, right? Paul is taking something that you know as well as anything, the human body, and using it to describe for us who we are as the church. 
It's very simple. We're one. We're one complete unified body. We're one. And we're many. This is, as I said, just like God, He is one and He is three. We have great unity and great diversity. And the only way for us to become as one as we should is for all of us to do the parts that we've been given to do. That's it. Paul here isn't emphasizing the differences of race or sex or economy, but the differences of abilities, the differences of gifting, the differences of aptitudes. That he has, by his spirit, made each of you a specific part for this body. And by part here, he, he just means everyday things. He means what you're good at. We we'd sometimes call these spiritual gifts, and that is a bit misleading. They're spiritual gifts in that God's spirit has given them. They're not spiritual gifts in that they're, they, they're not physical. You know what I mean? These are physical gifts. We have people who can play guitar. That's a spiritual gift. We have people who can clean a bathroom really well. That's a spiritual gift. We have people who can give you a very smooth, straight driveway. Spiritual gift. We have people who can cook. We have people who can sing. We have people who love to read and learn and teach. People can work with their hands. People work with their mouths. And we, we have all been given these gifts. And why are we given them? So that the members may have the same care for one another. So the members can have the same care for one another. Look back at verse 7. Who has these gifts? Who has them? Each of you. God has given you aptitudes and abilities, desires, and given you them so that you can use them for the church, to build each other up. When I say use them for the church, I don't mean only use them here on Sunday morning. Some of you have been given the gift of being a mother. And the way you serve the church is by raising your children in the Lord, doing all the work that nobody else sees, that is one of the hardest jobs in the world, to raise your children to be decent human beings who love Jesus, that they can be a future member of the church. Some of you build things, you roof things, you're good at it. This is a gift God has given you. Not going to use it here on Sunday morning. We're not going to be constructing anything here in the service. But you get to use it. The benefit of other people in the church to go out and make a living and support your family and other things. Maybe use it to support missions. Now, the second issue, the first issue that gets in the way is theology. The second issue is we see beginning in verse 15. If the foot should say... Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. I grew up in a small town that 
um, was all about sports, especially basketball. And because it was a small town, I played with the same boys year after year on the same teams. And there was one boy in particular that uh, played a lot of the same positions I did and was better than I was. He worked harder than I did, and I got really jealous of him. And my envy would cause me to rejoice when he failed or talk badly about him or make fun of him and try and tear him down. Um, I didn't like him. I was envious. I blamed him. It wasn't me, of course. It wasn't that he worked harder than me. It wasn't that God had given him better gifts than me. It was him. It was his dad. It was others. Envy is the second big problem here. Envy. It's what our world runs on today. It it is what our world runs on today. If you want to listen to any politician speak and almost all of his platform underneath it is envy. You don't have something. You deserve it. And I am going to take it from others and give it to you, so vote for me. This is envy. This is envy. All the social justice sort of things, all the language of making the rich pay their fair share, reparations, women's rights, all of that awfulness is all just envy. Because I'm not like somebody else, because I don't have what somebody else, I should, not by hard work, just by me deserving it, and them feeling obligated to give it. It's envy. And that sin can also be in our lives. It kills unity. It kills care for each other. This is the issue going on in Corinth. Verse 15, the foot doesn't like being the foot. He envies the hand. Because he's not the hand, he feels less important. And so he hates the hand. The foot is jealous of the hand. The remarkable thing about this is that the first part of what the foot says is true. Because I am not a hand. Yes. The premise is true. Half of his thinking is right. The conclusion, though, is utterly a lie. Because I am not a hand, I do not belong. This is how subtle the error can be in our minds. Because I am not this, which is true, there is distinctions. One is not the other. You are not going to be the same as everybody else, have the same abilities as everybody else, have the same place as everybody else, have the same prominence as everybody else. One is not the other. But it is a lie to say that that makes you less important. That's Paul's point. If the whole body were one part, it would cease to be a body. It would destroy itself. Again, this is something our world is rejecting. It's something that's seeping in it. A male is not a female. A little boy is not a little girl. A rich person is not the same as a poor person. A preacher is not a deacon. A janitor is not a nursery worker. There are differences. There are distinctions. And who has given those distinctions? Look at verse 18. Who has written in this world all of these differences and distinctions? God. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. We'll see this in verse 18 and again in verse 24. After showing each error, he points to God as the solution. Why are you here? 
Because God has chosen to put you here. Why is somebody else not here? Why do people leave? Because God has chosen to have them not be a part of our body. Why do you have the gifts that you have at this time in this body? Because God has arranged it, arranged it, ordained it. You are the part of this body that God has determined is needed here. You get that? Isn't that fantastic? The truth of verse 18 is mind-blowing. It's staggering. God arranged the members. God arranged each one of them as he chose. Your part right now in this body is exactly what God wants to have happen and nothing else. We don't need except you, us. It's staggering. It's wonderful. So same thing in your neighborhood small groups. You're building a little subunit of the body there. You're needed there. You're needed for the other people there. The other people there are going to be needed by you. After verse 18, we get a a, a third problem. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So in the first one, a part is speaking to itself. A member is speaking to himself saying, because I'm not that, I'm not needed. Now, a member is speaking to another member. I have no need of you. You're not like me. Therefore, you're less important than me and less needed than me. What's that problem? Pride. Arrogance, haughtiness. You become the most important person that you know in the church. And you look down on others. You, you might even serve others a ton. These kind of people often serve a lot. Because they get their importance and their worth from what they do. They don't get their importance and worth from being a part of Christ's body, being a part of Christ. They get their importance of what they do for you. You need them. Now, nobody actually ever says this, right? Once you get by middle school, you stop actually verbalizing this, you become more subtle. You realize that once you get old enough, it doesn't work to say, I don't want you on my team anymore. It gets more subtle. It gets more sneaky. It comes out now, not in you actually speaking to another member, but in you speaking to another member about another member. Right? It's gossip. It's it's malice. It's slander. It's... You, because because you're more subtle now, you've lost courage that came with the youth. It's in getting frustrated at the petty differences of other people that can't do what you can do, so you get frustrated at them. Or you get frustrated that nobody else is doing what you're doing, 
You do a lot. I do a lot. I wish people would show up like I do. I have this thing. Nobody's signing up. You get frustrated at people, angry. Or, or maybe you get angry when you're not asked. All right, we got this thing going on, and some people have been asked, but you haven't been asked. And it really makes you angry. The sin of pride often leaks out in anger. Because you think very highly of yourself. I think very highly of myself. We're very self-important. The church couldn't run without me. But Paul explains in verse 22 and 23 and 24 that it's not the indispensable parts. It's not the great parts that we give the greatest honor to. It's the weaker parts. It's the less presentable parts. Why is this? Because we follow a crucified Savior. Because God saves in the greatest act of weakness that could ever be. The Son of God hanging on a cross. So Paul says earlier in this letter that the weakness of God is greater than the greatest strength of a man. The weakest parts in the body are our greatest strength, our most important. So the solution is God. God has so composed the body. Who has composed this body? God has. Who has composed this body? It's God's. God has so composed the body, giving honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And so give me a widow in our church any day. Give me a woman who has suffered and gone through great loss and sees her great need of God and has such tenderness and compassion for others in their suffering. That's probably our greatest asset here. Give me a young boy full of vinegar shouting with excitement and running around like a crazy man. Watch God harness that and build it into a man and usefulness that will be to the church. It's often in, in the church the youngest and the eldest are the most vital. It's the weakest. It's the parts that most dispensable, that are the most indispensable. Why? Because that's how God's composed it. So here it is. You are here because God has you here. He has given you the gifts that you, that he decided you needed. And God at this point has given you to us and us to you, and we are the body of Christ. And what are we here for? Why are you part of a neighborhood small group? To care for each other. To have great concern for each other. For his glory, that's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is rather every day. Your word praise you for the simplicity of it, but it is often very difficult to live. 
And it's because of our sin, because of our envy and pride, and because of our lack of knowing what your word says about who we are. And help us to feel the worth of this passage that we are your son's body. Help us to hate our own envy and pride and just serve for your glory and the sake of others because of concern for them. Forgive us for our selfish motives, for our pride and arrogance and envy and jealousy. And God, continue to build this body that has great concern for each other and that there'd be no insignificant person Remove all enmity and infighting and division and help us to be what we are, which is uh, Christ, Christ, your son's body here for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.